0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation.
1: The way that I like to present this to people is that we tend to think of ourselves as normal, like we're um, what's typical of matter in the universe, but actually we're what's strange about the universe, because most of the structure in the universe, most of the matter in the universe, and most of our galaxy is actually made out of matter that's completely unlike us. And I think that this is like another way in which we are precious, because we are what's weird. Um, we're, we're not the likely scenario. The likely scenario is a bunch of dark matter that, um, looks, that looks, and I put looks in air quotes because we can't see it, nothing like us.
0: That's cosmologist Shonda Prescott Weinstein. As a black female professor, she's a rarity in her field, and she relishes the fact that all the things we see and experience in our lives, including the stars in the sky, are themselves rarities in the cosmos. This is so great to be talking with you. You started out being interested in the cosmos and astrophysics at a very early age, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I guess I was always interested in math first, so I came to math. And then um, I just got really interested in the physics that we were learning in my fifth grade science elective. And I think my teacher told my mom that I probably needed more science enrichment. So she took me to see a documentary about Stephen Hawking, and that kind of set me off.
0: But as I remember you telling the story before, she had to drag you to the theater to see the documentary.
1: So, yeah, my mom absolutely had to drag me, which, like, now that I'm old enough to understand, like, how money works, she actually, I grew up in East L.A., and this required driving to the Lemley Theater on the west side. So this was actually a big spend for her in terms of gas money and that kind of thing to actually get us there. And she was doing it for me. She didn't tell me that, though. She just said, I want to see that. We're going to a matinee. You have to come with me. (laughs) And that's, that's how, great. that's how she got me there. Yeah. And,
0: and not, not really knowing she was launching you at the age of 10 on a career.
1: Yeah. I didn't think she thought it would go that far. And in fact, when I came out of the movie theater, I was begging my mom for a copy of a brief history of time. I really wanted the book and my mom, I have a very distinct memory of my mom being like, no, you can't have that book. It, it, it'll it be too hard for you. I don't think it's a good idea. And I was like, "This is terrible." So of course, now I first I was oppressed because she was taking me to the movie, and then I was oppressed because she wouldn't get me the book. <laughs> and then her her older brother, my uncle Peter, got it for me for my eleventh birthday, which was a few months later.
0: How old were you when you wrote that letter to Stephen Hawking?
1: I must have been. I was either eleven or twelve. I'm, my mom's a political organizer, so I was very lucky that we had the internet in our household early. Um, because her political network paid for us to have access. So I had CompuServe or something like that. And I looked up his email address and emailed him. And I must have been about, I guess, when was the web live? I must have been 12, because that's when the web became public. So it was like 1994-ish.
0: So you not only got the internet access from your mother, but you got this spirit of reaching (laughs) out and doing something, right? I mean, to to write him an, an email. And you got an answer from, not from him, but from a graduate student.
1: I did. I got an answer from a graduate student, which um, at the time, I didn't think much of it. Now that I'm a professor, I'm like, I don't want my graduate students <laughs> replying to my emails. I want them calculating. <laughs> and absolutely, yes, I, I agree with you. I think that it was something I learned from my mother. If you want something, you got to go get the information. And then like you have to ask people like how you get there. And then you just go and do it. I think by the time I wrote that note, I had watched my mom I'm at the United Nations. And so to me, writing a little email seems simple compared to what she was doing, asking governments for money and stuff for, for women. It's
0: such a good example of the importance of being a, not just a mentor, but a model. Yes. But you, you already, even before the Stephen Hawking documentary, you already had a love of numbers, right?
1: Yeah, I I don't know why it does it for me, but I still think like the times tables are awesome. And I once I learned how to do (laughs) multiplication, I wait a minute, wait a minute. The
0: the timetables are awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have a love of patterns. I think I like looking for them. And when I see them, I I just enjoy it. So I I think for me it was just a lot of fun to to see these patterns and really when I think now about multiplication I think about how it's basically addition but we've come up with a way of simplifying it to condense it right Mm. and Mm. the the fact that this little symbol could be mapped onto that pattern was just a lot of fun for me I still I still have I think like at heart I'm still a mathematician first
0: yeah, I see what you mean about condensing it into a, a different pattern. But I, I've always got the impression that higher mathematics was a form of arithmetic, but it's not, is it? It seems to be a. It seems to be more of an art that that you can verify if you proceed from certain common assumptions.
1: Yeah. You know, I think in some sense that's freeing. That's not always clear to people that that's actually a freeing thing. When you learn the language, and it really is just, it's a foreign language that you have to learn when you Mm. pick it up. Then you start to see that there are these systems where in, um, when you think about certain systems, actually two has a different meaning than it does in the numbers that I learned from Sesame Street. I was totally, I was obsessed with the count on Sesame Street, not surprisingly, So I think it can be freeing. You just have to learn the language first. And that's the hard part.
0: What's the work you concentrate on mainly now?
1: Currently, I would say my primary focus is on dark matter. Um, I did my PhD dissertation on dark energy. So I get asked about both. They're completely different things, even though they have similar Mm names. So, I think the first thing I like to tell people about the way that dark gets used in cosmology is that physicists just label something as dark when they don't know what's going on. That's kind of, that's like our, we don't know what that is, so we're just going to say it's dark. And there's, as you can tell, I will always give you the sociological analysis when I'm giving you the scientific analysis at the same time. Yes, yes, uh, I, I get that. I, so I I think dark matter is maybe the most exciting um basic science question of our time if you have another scientist here they'll definitely say she's completely wrong it's something else but this is this is my fiefdom right now so i'll say that dark matter is the most exciting problem and basically most of the matter in the universe is made of something that we've never seen it's invisible to us it's transparent light doesn't interact with it but it interacts gravitationally with the kind of matter that we are made of so we tend
0: to think of ourselves Yeah, that's the l- yeah. L- let me let me jump in for a second because people who are not familiar with dark matter may be surprised to know that the universe that we're aware of that we can see or detect with instruments like planets and galaxies they only make up about what 5 or 6% of the universe.
1: Yeah. So the way that I like to to present this to people is that we tend to think of ourselves as normal, like we're um, what's typical of matter in the universe, but actually we're what's mm. strange about the universe because most of the structure in the universe, most of the matter in the universe, and most of our galaxy is actually made out of matter that's completely unlike us. Um, so that's really the, in the dark matter problem is what is the stuff that dominates the formation of galaxies and actually makes up most of the matter in the universe? It's very counterintuitive because our intuition is that the universe is what we can see, not what we can't see. But so much of the universe is actually what we can't see.
0: And yet it makes the universe what it is.
1: Yes. I think it's a powerful thing to think with. You know, Carl Sagan talked about how small and insignificant and simultaneously precious we are, and I think that actually got adapted into the into the contact film from his novel Contact. And I think that this is like another way in which we are precious because we are what's weird. Um, we're we're not the likely scenario. The likely scenario is a bunch of dark matter that um, looks that looks. And I put looks in air quotes because we can't see it. Nothing like us.
0: Vera Rubin did groundbreaking work on that. Am I right? Yes. Did you ever meet her?
1: I did. So actually, Vera Rubin was the first person to ever ask me how I thought the dark matter problem should be solved. Really? <laughs> yeah. At the time that she asked me the question, i um, I was like, I don't know. I'm a graduate student. Why is Vera Rubin asking me to solve this like very important <laughs> problem? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess it was at the 2009 Women in Astronomy conference is where is where I first met her, and now I realize. It was such an important moment because as graduate students we're often not asked our opinions on important problems in science. And in asking me that that question, she gave me permission to take ownership over the question and think of it as one mm-hmm. I was entitled to think about. I think it planted the seed. Okay, dark matter is a question that I should pay attention to, if only because Vera Rubin is worried about it. And Vera Rubin's really cool. <laughs> like <laughs>
0: And you picked up, went to work on a problem that's over 40 years old. What's an axion? Yeah. How, how did you get into axions? First of all, I guess we, we ought to say, first of all, what what we think, what you think an axion is.
1: The way that m- most people come to the axion, I guess, in, in popular discussion, is that the axion, it's a hypothetical particle that was proposed As basically part of a mechanism developed by Roberto Pecci and Helen Quinn, who is wonderful if you ever get a chance to meet Helen. And they were trying to solve a problem in the standard model of particle physics that had nothing to do with dark matter. And they came up with a solution, and it was realized fairly quickly that the solution to this problem came with an extra particle in it. And so this particle came to be known as the axion. I think Frank Wilczek is the person who gave it that name. After the laundry detergent, that's what he said, I think, is that... uh, (laughs) Right, right. that's what i (laughs) would. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was realized not long after that, that the axion had the right properties to potentially solve the dark matter problem. And I got bugged by it. I think that's the way to put it, is I got really <laughs> bugged by it. I was like, there are all of these things that we need to figure out. And so I'm still working on figuring out those calculations that I first got bugged about back in 2014.
0: Tell me a little more about what the axion is that that, that it probably is. is you get, if you get a whole bunch of axions together, do you have a bunch of dark matter?
1: So what's interesting about the axion and what makes it distinct from other types of dark matter. So we tend to talk about dark matter like it's a particle. Like, I'm um, hmm. sort of, I, I think our everyday intuition about particles is that they're kind of like very tiny billiard balls, right? That like bounce hmm. off of each other and sometimes come together and make atoms and, and that sort of thing. Wait, like, they're
0: not billiard balls?
1: They're not billiard balls. <laughs> oh my
0: God. I was just going to get a tiny little stick. <laughs>
1: I mean, you know, the thing about physicists is like if, if it works for a calculation, we'll think about them like that. So sometimes we do treat them like they're tiny little billiard balls. <laughs> yeah. It turns out for the axion that actually this is not the right way to, to do calculations with the axion. And it is often useful to think about it in its waveform. So we know that we can think of particles as either particles or as waves, right? This is mm-hmm. one of the lessons from quantum mechanics. And so in the case of the axion, it actually turns out to be valuable to think of it more as a wave. And this can actually, if we run a computer simulation where we assume that the dark matter is the axion, it actually will give us slightly different galaxy structure than Mm -hmm. other types of dark matter particles Mm -hmm. because of this property. So those are the kinds of the details of that are the things I'm one of, I, I get really bugged by the details of how we do these calculations. And I think my current position relative to the community is that people hand wave a lot and say, Oh, I'm sure that calculation is fine. And I'm like, no, let's figure out how to do that calculation correctly. And in detail, Mm. I'm a perfectionist about it. Maybe a little bit.
0: Well, it sounds like you you love being a perfectionist.
1: I guess. When we think of
0: <laughs> astrophysicists, we confuse them, I think, those of us in the public, with astronomers sitting at telescopes looking at things. And you, I get the impression, you do all your work with a pencil and a piece of paper.
1: Yes, although I've actually only recently switched back to pencils. <laughs>
0: <laughs> from from a computer or what?
1: I've been using pens for years, which like everybody. Oh, that's yeah. like doing
0: crossword puzzles with pens.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm so I yeah I've been I only recently, literally in December, bought some mechanical pencils. After I took one from my my husband and it ran out of blood, and I was like, I guess I need another one.
0: Is there something that happens to your brain? because of the instrument you're using? I mean, do you, does the flow come better?
1: Yeah, I comparatively, I'm a Luddite. I've never been able to make the switch to the computer that a lot of my colleagues have made. Like a lot of people will do calculations using like Mathematica and they'll like yeah. put the integral in and have the computer do it. Um, I think when I like writing... Um, like, that was a, another thing that I liked as a kid. I used to, like, steal paper from my my dad's office and, like, staple it together and try and make my own books. I, hadn't, I had no sense of what to put in them, right? <laughs> so there was, like, a lot of stapled together blank paper, basically. I, I really enjoy the act of writing, and so I think in doing work in astrophysics is is very much an aesthetic choice in some sense, and I think there's a kind of pleasure about it of just enjoying writing it out, seeing how the patterns work out. I guess you could say like the paper is kind of where my brain gets extended so that I can actually look at what's happening in it. That said, it is the case, like I was on my spin cycle this morning and I was definitely worrying about a physics problem. So when I get like very deep into it, I wasn't doing calculations though, I should be clear. I was really thinking about conceptual stuff. So that (sighs) part I, I do without paper sometimes.
0: So there you are thinking theoretically about axions, but do you really know if you're right without experimentation? Are there people doing experiments that can prove you are right the way Einstein's was proved by the uh, astronomy experience?
1: Yeah, so actually the axion is a fairly popular uh, candidate for experimental targets right now that are what we call direct detection. So they're hoping that an Axion will fly into the detector, and the detector will see um, the end product of an Axion. So um, one example is the Axion dark matter experiment at the University of Washington, which is a, a microwave cavity that's basically like a giant like canister. And it has an eight Tesla magnetic field inside of it. And the hope is that an axion will fly through, it will interact with the magnetic field, and it will cause two photons to be emitted, so a little bit of light.
0: So how do you know it's not something else flying through like a...
1: Yeah. uh, (laughs) This is why I'm a theorist, because doing experiments (laughs) is hard. You don't
0: have to worry about that. (laughs) When we come back from our break, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein talks about her experience being a black woman in a field dominated by white men, and she explains why she titled her new book, The Disordered Cosmos. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli institutes that support scientists who conduct basic curiosity driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big astrophysics, the very small nanoscience, and the very complex neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. I've read some things you've written where you talk about a human aspect to science, including bias, and and you accept or recognize the fact that they may be dedicated to being objective, but they can't escape being human.
1: I guess I will say... It's a little bit of a strange thing that we tend to think of physicists as people who can segment their brain. Like this is the objective side and this is the subjective side. This is the bias side and this is the unbiased side. And, you know, everything that we know about neuroscience teaches us that our brains are not linear or simple like that. Our brains are really complex, incredible machines that actually the differential equations that describe how neurons fire in our brains are... Um, in some cases, more complicated than the things I deal with in quantum field theory. And I think it makes sense that the ways in which we are subjective in our real lives, um, outside of, I guess I should say our real lives, and, and our outside of science lives will also come to play in, in, our, um, in our science lives. So it's strange to me that people see it as a big statement, because to me, it's not a big statement. I, I'm i Chanda Prescott-Weinstein when I'm on my... St- Spin cycle, and I'm still trying to press God Weinstein when I'm calculating. I'm activating different skill sets, but I'm still bringing myself to the table, regardless of which table it is.
0: I think the, the the most glaring example of what you're talking about is the bias that exists around you in your own field bias against people on the basis of color or sex. Exactly. I don't know if you. If you still feel this way, but I think I read you read your saying somewhere racism and misogyny sucked the fun out of particle physics. Have you been able to do something about that in your head or does it still challenge your love of your work?
1: I definitely feel challenged by it. I think that when I sit down to calculate, I am working through that. And I I have to say that one of the things that I worry about the most as an educator now. Now that I've 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 made it to the level of being a professor, is how do I support students who are coping with that same experience when I haven't necessarily completely perfected my own approach to it? But the negative experiences that we have because of our gender identity, or um, the color of our skin, or whatever um, comments people make about the texture of our hair, or, or or our sexual orientation, or any of those things, those things stay with you, right? And so they accumulate, mm-hmm. and um, they, they integrate over time, is maybe the way that I would say it to people who, who like calculus, um, that, the, that those things do add up. And so we have to find ways to deal with it so obviously, like one thing, I always encourage students to go and seek mental health support. I think that therapists exist for a reason, and that's a really important thing, and there shouldn't be any shame around getting, getting that kind of support. But I do think that at the end of the day, my hope is that people aren't having these negative experiences, and so they don't need support to get through them, because I would just like to subtract them out of the equation entirely. I am happier now than I was when I wrote that, but I also had an incredible support system that literally held me up when I didn't think I could hold myself up and when I was ready to give up. And it shouldn't require that level of support to keep going.
0: I was really shocked that I heard from uh, of s- someone on, on a webinar, you were on a student who said she was outside a building getting a rest. And- Someone came up to her and said, what are you doing here? If, you, if, you, if I see you here again, I'll call the cops.
1: Yeah. And even if someone's not policing you, like literally threatening to call the police by asking for your ID, there are other ways that people let you know that they don't think that you're supposed to be there. I think one experience that is, is very, very common, and I heard this from every student that I mentored while I was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT, and it's an experience that I had when I was an undergrad at Harvard, um, all of the, the black students were being told that we were only there because someone um, gave us a break, that we hadn't actually, we weren't smart enough to be there of our own volition. And not realizing that, for example, I had actually overcome bigger barriers and say, like Jared Kushner was one of my, was Harvard class of 03 with me. And his parents donated a lot of money to Harvard before he was interestingly admitted to Harvard. My mom couldn't even pay for me to take an SAT class. I did all of that by myself. Mm. So when people talk about affirmative action, I'm like, he's the affirmative action case. Like, I actually, I got myself into Harvard and that guy, his parents like literally bought him a spot, right? So I think that that's a form of policing too, because like, you're just constantly being reminded you don't belong here. Um, This isn't your space. It's not for you. You're an outsider.
0: And that sometimes said in a supposedly helpful way, this isn't for you. Yes. You won't you won't thrive there. You won't you won't be happy.
1: I had a, a black classmate who started in physics with me who was getting really high grades in another subject. And their advisor said, like, look, you're getting really high grades in that other subject. Why would you bother with physics? Rather than, hey, physics is hard, and our physics program is designed for people who went to Exeter, not people who went to public school.
0: I was told by, I think he was a mathematician in South Africa a few years ago, who said when people left, black people left South Africa to study in England, they often would buy into the stereotype that had been imposed on them, and they would go into law or literature and not science or math, or engineering, because they had been told so many times that they do better in in a word-oriented profession, and you can start to believe it.
1: Yes. It's definitely, you know, even I had to sometimes talk to my friends about this. People would say, you're very good with words. Why don't you just become a lawyer? And I would always say, but that's not what I told you I want to be. That should be (laughs) the end of the conversation. (laughs) I mean, also, I can do both, right? I actually, my my husband is a lawyer, and I'm always telling him that, like, during my sabbatical year after tenure, I'm going to start a law degree, which, like, is kind of his worst nightmare. (laughs) But, you know, we accept that there are white men who have been recognized in our culture as being multi-talented and multi-interested. But somehow people have a more difficult time. Like, I actually think you're a great example of this. You're a talented actor. You've also taken a great interest in popular science, which I think everybody is like, really grateful for um, because you've been such a, a great proponent. Um, I, I remember when you put out the challenge of how to explain fire to people and how to describe a flame that I was like, oh, man, that's like a really hard problem. But it was good for us to be confronted with that challenge, right? So I think it's important for people to also understand that, oh, hey, a black woman can also be multi-talented and multi-interested too, and that we don't have to be pigeonholed into when, like, this is the thing you do, this is who you are, but we can be all of these things.
0: So you really seem to be into disorder (laughs) The title of your book is The Disordered Cosmos. Is that it? Yeah. So what's disordered about it? Is it really disordered or is it that we don't have complete knowledge of it?
1: Well, you know. And it
0: looks disordered.
1: If you had asked me this question like three weeks ago, I probably would have given you a different answer than the answer I'm going to give you now. Uh,
0: Oh, this is good.
1: I've been reading uh, Julian Barber's new book with his theory of time. The book is called The Janus Point." And in it, he talks about this, the second law of thermodynamics. We tend to tell the general public the second law of thermodynamics is that entropy always increases. Um, so the universe is always tending towards more disorder. And really, the, the way that we derive the equations that describe this law is that we assume we're in a box that's not expanding, which is a very idealized situation. And it's not the universe we live in. We actually live in a universe that's expanding, right? So Barber makes the claim that the universe doesn't tend toward disorder. It tends toward complexity. Mm. And I'm still working my way through the book. So maybe by the end of it, I'm going to hate it. But it's a beautifully written book. It's very, um, he's very compelling. Julian's a lovely man. I've always had great interactions with him. So I was interested in his ideas. And I found that really compelling. So when I think about disorder, I think we do have to think now about complexity. And I think we are an example of complexity. Galaxies are an example of complexity. Would I call the galaxy disorder? Probably not. It's highly organized. It's just very complex.
0: Mm. So is it too late to change the title of the book?
1: (laughs) I mean, I can tell you the story behind the title of the book. Yeah, so um, the very first paper that I published with one of my PhD advisors, Lee Smolin, was a theory to explain cosmic acceleration, to explain the dark energy problem, that used an idea from a quantum gravity model that he was working on at the time, that there would be non-local connections between different places in the universe. So we calculated the energy associated with these non-local connections, and said it could be the exact amount that we need to describe the dark energy. And so we called these disordered links or disordered non-locality. So that was where it came from. Um, Around that time, I decided to start a blog, and I was trying to think of a name for the blog, and so I called it the Disordered Cosmos. So that was when it came time to write my first book, I was like, that should be the name of the book. And that was really kind of where that came from.
0: So roughly how do you play that out what how do you how do you find disorder in the cosmos that fits the title
1: I think that there are a few different ways so certainly I think like the the lowest hanging fruit here is some of the sociological stuff that we've been talking about in terms of how uh-huh. bias unfolds in the field it creates a kind of disorder in the sense that, Let's think about there are under 100 black American women who have earned PhDs in physics in all of U.S. history. Um, Most of those women do not go on to stay in academia and continue doing research in physics. And often that means that there are lines of thought that have just been dropped because they walked away and stopped thinking about them. Even if they were bugged about them, maybe they kept thinking about them, but they stopped publishing about it. And so that inserts some disorder into the system, that there is no linear reason that a, a scientific idea isn't being thought through, except maybe this woman experienced bias that made her not want to be a physicist anymore. So I would say that's one example of kind of the social disorder that, that we experience, that it's not a linear Oh, well, people decided that was not a good idea, so people stopped thinking about it. But sometimes people decided that she wasn't worth it, and so she wasn't allowed to think about it anymore. Two very different scenarios, right? Um, I think the other thing is, is that as scientists, the way we come to ideas is not necessarily ordered, The way that I came to dark matter was not because I sat down and made a life plan and said, I'm now going to work on dark matter starting in 2014. It was because of a conversation I had with someone. Mm. The particular thing that I'm best known for in in particle physics is thinking about a phenomenon called Bose-Einstein condensate dark matter. What's it called? Bose-Einstein condensate axions is is probably what I'm best known for. And the idea of a Bose-Einstein condensate is that There are two classes, quantum classes of particles, and one of them, they can all act like the pep squad together and all go into the same energetic state and act like one super particle together. And this energetic state is called a Bose-Einstein condensate. Usually we think about Bose-Einstein condensates in atomic physics, not in cosmology, not in particle physics. I first learned about them as an undergraduate. I got really into the idea of a Bose-Einstein condensate Never thought I would use it in my research. And then literally, what was it? It was like 15 years later, I was applying the idea to dark matter. There's nothing orderly about that. It's a completely disordered, like it was a thing in my brain and somebody else was thinking about it. And I latched onto it because I was like, wait, this brings together two things that I really like.
0: It sounds like your work and the work of a lot of scientists, if not all, is to search for order in the disorder so it'll if we read your 10th or 12th book <laughs> you'll be able to call it the much more ordered universe
1: or I'll be saying the very complex universe maybe
0: <laughs> <laughs> as as often happens we're at the end of our conversation just when I want to go on for a long time more and on our other show clear and vivid we always end with seven questions, and we're gonna start doing that okay. <laughs> here, but, but they're different questions. They're more science oriented. First question, and you can give quick answers. Okay. What was the first thing you remember being curious about?
1: I think spelling words.
0: <laughs> spelling words? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting.
1: <laughs> like at, cat, bat. My mom was a reading teacher, so. I, I have a very distinct memory of that pattern and being interested by that pattern, which is, I guess, like time patterns. Yeah, patterns. Pattern. Yeah. patterns.
0: Yeah, patterns. Patterns. Yeah. Patterns. So okay, Newton said, "If I can see farther, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants." Whose whose shoulders are you standing on?
1: I have to say, all of the ancestors who came before me and fought to make room for me.
0: Mm. So not just in science, but all of the ancestors.
1: Not just in science. I'll say the first person who came to mind was my grandmother, Elsa, who came to the United States on her birthday. It must have been a completely terrifying thing to leave Barbados behind. Um, and she reminded me when I went to say goodbye to her when she was dying that um, she came to this country on her birthday, and I'm um, she didn't have enough to eat, and I have plenty to eat. I can eat whatever I want. Mm. Um when there's not a pandemic, I really miss sushi, yeah. but I'm very lucky to be able to miss sushi because of my grandmother.
0: Yes. Good. What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most?
1: All oh, right. I really, I like doing calculus. <laughs> I just really like derivatives and integrals. They never get old.
0: <laughs> As a scientist, what was the best moment you ever had?
1: You know, I think seeing my students and how much they had learned at the end of the first astrophysics course I took was a pretty amazing moment. I think, you know, they, they complained a little bit along the way, but um, seeing the distance that they came was pretty incredible. So I think for me, it's being an educator has been one of my, my brightest moments.
0: What was the worst moment?
1: Um, definitely, I had many moments when I thought my career was over, and those were very hard to deal with.
0: What What, what would have been one?
1: Um, I took a political stand to support Native Hawaiians in the fight uh, about the thirty meter telescope on Mauna Kea, mm-hmm. and it became very clear that this had upset a lot of people in the astronomy community, and that it was going to impact me professionally. And I was pretty scared. I still feel morally I did the right thing, and I stuck with my principles, and that's what I would always advise someone to do, Um, but it was a a scary moment.
0: Mm. Next to last question, what gives you confidence?
1: I think I'm an okay writer now. I think, like... (laughs) I like I I feel so I guess I'll say when I'm able to write something down and I'm like, "Hey, I don't hate reading this." That gives me confidence. <laughs>
0: <laughs> where where do you write a regular column for The New Scientist? Yes. Yeah. Do you still do a blog?
1: Yeah, so I I guess now I have everybody's doing newsletters now. So I have a Substack, chanda.substack.com. Um which is mostly just updates about my book right now, but I'm um, Yeah. I, I, I still get a lot of opportunities to write in different forms for different audiences and I'm being able to like look back on a year and see all of the different types of writing I've done. It's nice to see that I have that kind of range and that I've put the work into developing it. I don't think it's innate. I think it was hard work.
0: This is a tough question. Last one. Yeah. What do you think we can do to help people enjoy a love of science, more people?
1: I think, you know, I think about my mother, who my mom always says, you know your mother's an idiot when it comes to math. Um, and my mom, started. she came to the United States with, with my grandmother when she was 13, and I always wonder what happened to her in the education system that she got that story. So I think we need to let people enjoy science by not telling them that they're too stupid to understand science. Anybody can understand science. Sometimes it takes a little bit of work. We need to give people the room to have time to do that work.
0: That's great. Thank you for thank you for bringing me a step or two forward in our conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun, and I appreciate all of the work you do for helping science get out there. It's a great service. Oh,
0: thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
1: Bye bye. Bye.
0: This has been Science, Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Shonda Prescott Weinstein is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and a core faculty member in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. Her new book is The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. She was named by the journal Nature one of the ten people who helped shape science in 2020. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill you can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Eugene and Kevin Shenderov. They're brothers who came to America after being exposed to radiation from the Chernobyl explosion. They're now both physician researchers whose personal experience shapes their relationship to their patients. I think in my case, it directly stems from my lived experience with uh, being a survivor of cancer. And uh, when I see the patient in front of me and we can have a discussion of their hopes, their dreams, their side effects of the treatment, it puts into stark relief that there is a person who needs to be given the proper care in order to achieve the quality of life that is best and that the things that are being developed as a researcher can be translated directly into how they impact someone. In my medical training, I realized that I really, really enjoyed working with critically ill patients in the ICUs and trying to understand how can we know who's going to become critically ill And how can we help them? Eugene and Kevin Shenderov. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.